You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, There are two questions I get that entirely miss the point. A question I get from straight people that entirely misses the point, and a question I sometimes get from gay people that entirely miss the point of the whole savage love idea universe column podcast. The clueless miss the point question from some clueless missing the point straight people goes like this. What qualifies you to give advice to straight people? What would you know about being straight? What we have here is a little bit of projection. The people who send me that question slash accusation are projecting ignorance. The straight people who ask that assume that it's possible for a gay person to know as little about straight relationships and straight sex as they themselves know about gay relationships and gay sex. That's not possible for us. We can't know as little about you as some of you know about us because you can't be gay and not at least informed in a an impression of straight people and straight sex and have some passing familiarity with straight relationship dynamics because almost all of us are, after all, the products of straight sex and almost all of us were raised by straight people in quote-unquote straight families or families that were straight until we entered them. The Miss the Point question from some gays goes like this. Your column, your podcast, it's too straight now. It's all straight people and straight questions. When did it get so straight? Um, Right away? At the very beginning? The whole idea, back in 1991 when we were launching Savage Love, well, it was just, it was a joke. I was going to give straight people advice about straight sex and only take questions from straight people. There had never been an advice column written by a queer guy, by a gay guy, giving advice to straight people. There have been plenty of columns by straight people who would occasionally give advice to gay people, but none where it was just a gay person going off on straight sex. And so at least at the start, there weren't going to be any gay questions. I was just going to talk about straight sex and talk to straight people about their straight things. And so when I get letters like this one, holy hell, I can't take it. Your show is 90% straight people's bullshit. I love that there are all these good-hearted liberal straight people out there, but what the fuck is up with the lack of gay anything on your show? I was excited to rediscover your show, but I can't take it. I'm so over hetero people in what I thought were LGBT spaces and so tired of hearing about pussies and squirting and guys' girlfriends and guys hitting on girls and yada yada. If you could kindly direct my 25-year-old gay ass to a truly gay podcast, I would be forever grateful. Okay, two things. There's always going to be a lot of straight people on the Savage Lovecast and in the column because that's what it's for. I'm here to help them. I also now take questions from gay people and answer a lot of questions from queer people about our shit, our things that aren't always that unique. Relationships are relationships and grinding bits together are a lot like grinding bits together, whoever you are. But yeah, most of the questions on the Savage Lovecast are going to be from straight people because most of the people out there in the world listening are straight. But I can, in fact, direct you to a truly gay podcast, Brian. It was Brian who wrote me that letter. I can direct you to a truly super gay podcast. That would be today's Savage Love Cast. In honor of Pride Week and to keep you hanging in there as a listener, Brian, we decided to make all of the questions on today's Savage Love Cast queer. All from queer people, overwhelmingly from gay men. This one, Brian, is just for you. 
And on top of all those questions from all those queer people on today's show, on the Magnum, me and author Matthew Reimer go into a deep dive on LGBTQ history. His book, We Are Everywhere, is an amazing chronicle of all the unsung heroes and events of the queer rights movement. And we had a fascinating conversation about it. That's also coming up for Brian and everyone else who's interested on today's Savage Lovecast. Hello, Dan. This is a 27-year-old gay woman calling from New York City. I met my girlfriend's parents for the first time this year. We've been dating for about a year. Her family made me feel really welcomed. It was really fun to meet them and super special. Um, After the meeting, my girlfriend expressed her wanting to meet my mother. I hadn't really thought about introducing them yet, mostly because I had kind of been avoiding the situation. I've always kept people updated from my mother. I have been out for a really long time, but only really came out to her last year. She was definitely shocked. She was a little freaked out. She had the pretty run-of-the-mill homophobic kind of reaction to it. But the more we talked about it, the more um, she kind of understood, and she's actually really supportive now. It's been really nice. But I'm still super freaked out about the meeting. We did buy plane tickets to go to Florida, also kind of like as our last big vacation before I go to grad school, but so my girlfriend can meet my mom. I am super stressed about it. Uh, My mom is not really conservative or religious, but she's this really traditional Hispanic immigrant mom. I'm really concerned about how they're going to interact. Uh, My mom is a little bit on the judgy side, kind of on the uptight side. There's definitely going to be a language barrier. There's going to be a cultural barrier. And there's also going to be me. I am just so nervous about it and I'm afraid to ruin the mood. I don't know if I should just kind of like let things happen and just like let them get to know each other pretty naturally or, but I, but I also can't seem to stop kind of like micromanaging the situation being like, okay, I only want them to meet for lunch and then we're going to leave, get out of there, go to Miami beach, get a hotel room. And I never have to think about it again. I don't know why I'm so uncomfortable. So yeah, I'm just wondering if you have any advice on like, a person that's never introduced anyone that's ever dated to their parents and has never discussed their romantic life up until this point with that parent and introducing them to their gay partner for the first time. I know why this makes you uncomfortable. This could go very poorly and it's not in your control. It's in your mother's control. Her reaction is going to determine whether the first meeting with her lesbian daughter's same-sex partner is pleasant cordial or contentious and disastrous. And that makes you feel insecure. That makes you feel worried. It makes you want to assert control where you can, like setting a time limit. And I think that's a pretty good idea, given that you only came out to your mother a year ago, given that her reaction wasn't positive. Have a lunch. So there's a beginning, middle, and an end. You're committing to 90 minutes as opposed to showing up at mom's house for the day And if mom is horrible, not being able to extract yourself from that shit show without making the shit show worse. All that said, your mother could have a very different reaction than the one that you expect. Sometimes homophobic parents react to the thought of a same-sex partner and it's a hypothetical. And they'll worst case scenario disorder that and they'll imagine – you know, their daughter isn't a terrible, awful, evil, lesbian, homosexual, queer terrorist, but they imagine every other lesbian out there is some evil, terrible, queer, homosexual terrorist. And so you're going to be dating one of the awful ones, even if they're willing to concede that you aren't one of the awful ones 
yourself and then meeting the actual as opposed to the hypothetical as opposed to the imaginary same-sex partner parents can have a very different reaction because having a one-on-one with a human being a human being who is fond of their child that can override homophobia homophobia can also override that it could still go very poorly but the only way to find out how this is gonna go is for it to go and for you to see and hopefully your mother will come through and things won't go as badly as you fear they might but you wouldn't have come out of the closet at all if you were clinging to fears about how things might go and the worst reactions that people including family could possibly have you came out into the teeth of that now you need to be out about your relationship and i think it's perfectly reasonable for your girlfriend at this stage of your relationship to want to meet your family She's just introduced you to her family. And it's going to have to happen sooner or later. Your mom is going to have to meet one of your partners, your girlfriends, a future wife or an actual wife eventually. So go for it. But I support your plan. Mom, we're going to be passing through town. Let's have lunch. I want to introduce you to someone very special to me. And then meet at a time and a place where you've got 90 minutes, two hours tops. Hang out with mom. If it goes well, maybe extend it. You can go for a walk and get some coffee. But then... Book it to Miami Beach and get into that hotel room and eat the shit out of each other's pussies and have a little victory lap. Hey, Dan. I am a 23-year-old queer black man in North Carolina. So most of the time when I hook up with guys, uh, we do oral and uh, just jacking off or touching. And I like that, but I'd also like to bottom or to do anal more. Now, I would prefer to bottom more than I do, but most of the time when I do do anal with guys, they want me to top them. And I've enjoyed, I've done it a couple times and I've enjoyed it, but lately I've been having trouble maintaining an erection during the time. I'll start to get a guy off and then he'll want me to top him and in the time between it takes me to get a condom on and times to then start fucking him, it I, I start going a little bit soft and makes it hard for me to actually have sex. And I was wondering if you had some tips or anything, uh, advice on how to maintain an erection. Also, do you think I should keep trying to top? Because I consider myself verse. I've done topping and bottoming both, and I enjoyed both, but I would like to bottom more. But for the time being, it seems like most of the guys I'm with want me to top them. So do you think that that's just something I'm going to have to live with? Or do you think I'm going to have to start turning guys down if they're not willing to top me tips for how to maintain an erection well maybe lay in some ed meds if you like if that's not too depressing to contemplate at age 23 no shame no stigma people use ed meds at all ages and get a couple of cock rings something that can bridge that gap you aren't the only guy on the planet who in the time it takes to go get the condom and put it on can lose focus That said, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think your dick resents the role that you're being forced to play. You're going to bed with a lot of guys. You're a gay black man. I assume some of the guys or many of the guys you're going to bed with are white dudes. And you're being cast as, you know, this cliche of gay male blackness that you are, of course, going to be the top. You are going to be the dude who does the fucking. And as versus you are as much as you occasionally enjoy topping it would be depressing to be expected as a matter of course to top 
in all instances. And so I think as good an attitude as you have consciously, some part of your reptile brain is like, yeah, no, this is not what I want to do. And on some level, consciously or subconsciously, I think that there's completely legitimate resentment creeping in around the edges because part of the reason I think you're being pigeonholed and I think you understand this. I don't have to tell a 23 year old gay black man this, but part of the reason you're being pigeonholed into the top role is because of your race. So you're going to have to use your words. You're going to have to tell guys before you go to bed that you are bottom verse, that you are primarily a bottom. You can even leave out the verse part for a while until you get your groove back. You can tell guys you are 100% bottom and you do not top. And then you're not going to find yourself in bed with a guy or as many guys who try to manipulate you into performing this role that you enjoy performing occasionally, but you don't want to be forced to play at all times and for all guys. So yeah, go get a cock ring, go get some ED meds. If you like, don't forget to stroke yourself when you're putting a condom on and, and work yourself back up. But if what's going on here under the surface is informed by these racist expectations of the role you're going to play, you're going to have to get out in front of that. And by getting out in front of that and by communicating to the guys that you're going to sleep with, you will wind up perhaps in bed with fewer guys, but the guys you'll wind up in bed with, they'll be a better match for you and they'll be better guys also as a bonus. Hi, I'm a uh, recently gay uh well recently you know coming out gay man in his early 20s from the northeast and i've sort of encountered a problem in my new relationship i come too quick for him and it makes me nervous and sort of insecure especially as due to my age and only recently sort of coming out and understanding myself i don't have much experience with anal sex and we've had um loads of oral sex and stuff before and it went great but now that we've started moving on to anal sex, my inability to last long sort of makes me nervous because this might sound a bit stereotypical, but young gay men are sort of hard to get to commit to, you know, relationships, generally speaking, uh, from my personal experience anyways, too. And it makes me sort of nervous he'll leave in order to find a sexual partner who is maybe more in tune with him. I'm never really an insecure person, and I think he was sort of initially attracted to my confidence and sort of projected that I'd be some sort of sex god or something because of, you know, what we did during oral sex and everything and my generally more confident nature. So I guess my question is, how do I cope with this insecurity and talk to him about it without sounding really insecure or unattractive? And or just sort of how do I solve this problem in general completely? One of the ways you demonstrate to someone your confidence in yourself is being unapologetically yourself. You're a recently out young gay man dating another recently out young gay man and you're just beginning to explore anal sex. And what you've discovered on your initial explorations is that the intensity of anal sex, whether the physical sensations or the psychological sensations are so intense that you come a lot faster from anal, at least right now you are, than you do from oral or mutual masturbation. And so you're having a bit of a premature ejaculation problem with anal. And he knows it. He knows when you come, when you're having anal intercourse. He knows how fast you come. So just put that out there. Just don't be afraid to discuss that. Like, wow, anal really hits me in a way that, you know, I'm just beginning to do this stuff and I really like it, but it really like slams my dick in a way that I am coming super fast. So we're going to have to experiment to find ways 
that I can last longer through anal. It might help if you don't go from insertion to slamming instantly. Take it really slow. You want to, in effect, edge yourself inside him. You want to creep up to that point of orgasmic inevitability, learn exactly where it is so that you can back off and breathe, even pull out for a second before you dive back in or shove yourself back in and really learn what the progression of plateaus feel like on your way to that point of orgasmic inevitability. And you can present it to him, not as a deficiency, not as you're broken, but present it to him as wow, this really works. This is really intense. Uh, I really, really enjoy this. In fact, the pleasurable sensations and the enjoyment of it hits me so hard that I'm coming a little faster, as you know, from anal than from oral. So let's take it slow and figure out how to extend the life of anal intercourse. Also, at your age, you can come and rest up for 10 minutes and usually be ready to go again. That is a superpower that fades over time. You're going to want to lean into that in your early 20s while you can. So if you come right away from anal, you don't have to stop fucking him. You can keep fucking him. Your dick should stay hard for a little bit longer. And then if he's not done being fucked, pivot to oral, pivot to rolling around, pivot to dirty talk, give it 10 minutes, wait for your boner to come back. And I promise you that second boner will last eons longer by comparison. Hi, Dan. So my wife and I just decided to try something new and we watched some porn together. And we wanted to watch lesbian porn, but of course most porn that is quote unquote lesbian porn is geared toward men. So I was wondering if you have a suggestion for a site where we could find lesbian porn that is, you know, all porn is fake, but maybe a little more authentic and maybe not so much geared toward men. I would suggest you familiarize yourself with the Google tool. Doesn't take long if you Google lesbian porn made by and for lesbians to find your way out of the piles of porn made featuring lesbian sex for straight guys, by straight guys, and two, hot lesbian porn made by bi and lesbian women for other bi and lesbian women. Autostraddle is a terrific online magazine for lesbian, bi, and queer women, cis and trans, and they have a tag porn. You can go to Autostraddle, search porn, and you will find dozens and dozens and dozens of articles not just about the porn, but also about the creators. I would also suggest getting on the Twitter while sex workers and pornographers are still allowed on the Twitter and following people like non-binary performer and producer and director Jiz Lee and following a bunch of the people that they follow because they're tapped into the whole independent porn world. And it doesn't take long to familiarize yourself with the players and the creators and the performers in that world. If you show a little bit of initiative and you know how to use the Google, which everybody should know how to use at this stage. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a 25 year old hetero male living in the Atlantic Northeast. My question today is related to a conversation that I saw one of my trans, my trans friends having, and it really got me thinking about you know, the whole LGBTQ community. They made a post and it said, allies are not a part of the community. And 
they were saying that they don't care what anyone thinks, that that's just how it is. And as a black man, I can understand, you know, people not necessarily being a part of the community, like allies for, for African-American individuals. They're still invited to the cookout, but they're not saying the N-word. Like, that's fine. I Like that, I can get behind. However, completely uh, like saying mm, they're not invited and they're not a part of things like Pride Month because reasons, I, I just don't get it. I guess it's okay for me not to understand and, you know, people can have their own opinions, but I don't want to feel like I have to belong in there like as an ally. The way I took it was everyone should be an ally. There shouldn't need to be an inclusion of allies at that point. Now I'm sitting here thinking, well, we don't live in that idealistic world. And if I'm willing to put my life down for my friends, my family, shit, even the people I don't know who happen to be gay, who happen to be trans, who just live their lives, why would you deny me the ability to love those people and be a part of that community as, an ally, I guess. I don't know. I feel like I'm being a big baby. Your call made me think of white people who were a part of the civil rights movement, who marched, who went south on freedom rides to register voters. We would say that they were, like I just said, a part of the civil rights movement. They played a role in the civil rights movement. You wouldn't say that they were members of the African-American community. Now, when you compare race and sexual orientation, it gets a little fuzzy. The you can't analogize from one experience to the other. And of course, there are people out there who are both queer and African-American. That said, it sounds like you're a little butt sore that you don't get to be a part of, quote unquote, the community. You can be a part of the movement. An ally is part of the movement for LGBTQ, LMNOZ, civil equality, but they aren't queer themselves. And of course, this is complicated by the fact that there are straight people who fall under the LGBTQLITS umbrella. There are straight identified asexuals and asexuals consider themselves and are considered a part of the queer community. There are straight identified trans people. There are assigned female at birth persons who transition to male who wind up in relationships with assigned female at birth and accurately so women they are in heterosexual marriages, straight relationships, and yet they are, of course, a part of the queer community. So there's a little bit of gray and blur around the edges. But someone who is straight up heterosexual and cis, yeah, you are a part of the movement and you are an important part of the movement. We wouldn't get anywhere. We wouldn't have gotten anywhere without straight people coming around and linking arms with us and, and joining our side. The the success of the queer rights movement really is grounded not in petitions and not in marches, but in people coming out in their own families. That is our secret weapon. We are randomly distributed throughout the population. We are born into heterosexual families and bringing our families around and creating allies of our straight parents and straight siblings and straight aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. We don't make queers out of them. They're still straight people. So they're not part of the queer community technically, but they're certainly welcomed by the queer community, celebrated by the queer community. And the queer community is grateful for our allies in straight land, just as 
African-Americans at the height of the civil rights movement were grateful for the support of white people who joined Freedom Rides and white people who marched. But they were never confused about whether those white people were still white people. Hey, my name's D. I'm gay. I'm 31. So I just had an STD screening. Everything came back good. But my doctor said something. She said that you're not supposed to blow guys without a condom. That is like my, uh, that's how I punctuate a good date. You know, if, if things went well, that's, that's kind of, you know, a good opening salvo, I guess. So I'm just wondering, like, what's another option or, or something? Because I've never, ever met a gay guy that, like, we, there's no blowjobs with condoms. I've never had that happen. So um, just was curious if you had any ideas on that. Like, like, what's the line of safe sex when, you know, a lot of guys would just fuck without a condom even? There are a lot of guys out there, gay guys, bi guys, fucking without condoms because prep and effective treatment for HIV AIDS has changed the calculus. People used to figure, don't want to get HIV because I'll die. And they were more careful and cautious when the drug cocktails came along and turned having HIV AIDS from a very likely and usually pretty rapid death sentence to a chronic illness. People stopped using condoms as frequently and as religiously as they had. And when PrEP came along, pre-exposure prophylaxis, a daily pill that gay and bi men can take that make it very, very, very unlikely that they will get infected with HIV even if they aren't using condoms, even if they're having sex with someone who's positive. And then the proof, first there was a lot of anecdotal evidence, now we've got the studies in that prove that someone who has HIV, who is taking their meds and has an undetectable viral load is uninfectious. Big study out of the UK, a 1,000 couples, so 2,000 guys, where they weren't using condoms in the relationship, where one person is HIV positive, the other person isn't HIV positive, not using condoms in the context of that relationship. Of those 1,000 couples, only 15 guys got HIV, but they didn't get it, tests showed, from their partners with HIV. They got it by having sex with other guys who had HIV. So they were safer at home not using condoms with the partner that they knew to be HIV positive than they were out there fucking around with other guys who didn't know that they were positive. Anyway, that's changed the calculus. And so, yeah, there's a lot of guys out there who will fuck without condoms now. And one of the things that guys who fuck without condoms are saying is, I don't really care that much about gonorrhea. I don't really care that much about syphilis. New study just came out actually from Australia showing that gonorrhea can be passed through kissing, deep kissing, French kissing, and that gay and bi men are particularly at risk for this form of oral gonorrhea. I can't imagine people are going to start using dental dams for kissing or wrapping their heads up in saran wrap before they kiss. There's a certain degree of risk that people decide that they're willing to shoulder for the benefits of, for example, Given blowjobs or getting blowjobs without condoms, which are pretty much the only kind of blowjobs gay men ever get or give. Your doctor is basically telling you that you shouldn't suck anyone's dick because you might get a sexually transmitted infection that way. And your doctor is urging you to err on the side of 100% safe. 100% safe isn't a standard we apply to driving, dinner, flying, snowboarding, skydiving, chicken salad, anything else. We know that all human pleasures, all human pursuits come with some built-in degree of risk. And you want to take what steps you can to minimize and mitigate those risks. But at a certain point, you roll your dice, you move your mice, and you might get 
oral gonorrhea given a blowjob. And that's why you want to get regularly screened for STIs if you have multiple partners, as most gay men do, and get treated when you do contract an STI and communicate to your partners, your recent partners who are within the window of potentially getting infected if you have an STI that they need to go get tested and treated if they have the STI as well. But your doctor's right. I guess you shouldn't give a blowjob without wearing a condom because you might get a sexually transmitted infection otherwise. Well, you might get a sexually transmitted infection. You might get the exact same sexually transmitted infection before you put that condomed dick in your mouth just from kissing the dude whose dick you're about to suck with the condom on it. So your doctor's advice is perfectly valid advice from a doctor. But then you have to make up your own mind about the pleasures that you want in your life and the risks you're willing to run to have those pleasurable things in your life and in your mouth. Hi, Dan. I recently found out that my transgender husband has a coworker who's been going around telling all new employees that he is trans. The same coworker has also been sharing that their supervisor is a big old queer. So I'm really pissed off because tell the wrong person. And honestly, that could be really dangerous. I also feel like it isn't legal. Protected classes of people are not supposed to be being outed at the workplace. Uh, we don't really know what to do. And I would love your thoughts on this. If your husband's coworker is outing your husband as trans and has also outed another employee as gay, seems to me that that's something you take straight to HR. And if indeed, after you consult your local laws and statutes, if it's illegal where you live and this is a form of harassment and there are protections against harassment of LGBT people in the workplace where you live, you have a complaint and HR is going to have to deal with it. And it seems to me that the reprimand should come not from your husband, not from the other gay dude at work, but from this asshole's bosses. And what this dude's doing, of course, is assholery and not cool and probably most certainly a violation of if this is a larger company policy at that company, not to gossip about the private lives of the sexual identities or gender identities of other employees. And as much as I don't want to give him any benefit of the doubt, you don't say whether he's being a malicious shit in this, trying to stir things up, trying to get your husband or this other gay dude in trouble. He could just be fucking dumb. He could just be dense and stupid and think that this is something interesting and he's sharing these facts and it gives him a certain power or it gives him a certain social cachet to know these things and clue other people in and that's shitty. That's awful and he shouldn't be doing that and he needs to understand that he can't do that and remain employed at this company. Hopefully that message will be sent to him by his bosses and by the HR department but we fought queer people to make our queerness a neutral fact about us, not something that we should have to hide, not something that we should necessarily feel shame about, and not something that's a deep, dark, horrible secret about us. And some straight people, of course, turn around and think, well, this isn't a deep, dark secret. This is just a neutral fact about this person. And I'm mentioning this like I would mention that they're a Cubs fan, or I'm mentioning this like I would mention that that they're Italian-American or whatever else. But your coworker, your husband's coworker, needs to understand that we don't live in a world where being queer 
particularly being trans, is as neutral a fact about someone as they're a Cubs fan or they're Italian-American and that this is potentially endangering. The further this spreads, the further out of your husband's control who he's out to about his transness gets, the likelier this info is to get to someone who could have a violent reaction. Trans people are a particular risk of anti-LGBT violence. And if indeed this asshole isn't being malicious, the asshole's being dense. And if they aren't being malicious, once acquainted with these facts about the danger that what they're doing poses to the other queer people at the company, if indeed putting them in danger isn't his goal, again, benefit of the doubt here, he'll knock it off. But if it is about putting people in danger, if it is about being a malicious shit, if he is a transphobic, homophobic bastard, Hopefully he won't after you lodge your complaint or your husband lodges his complaint, be in employment at that company for much longer. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old bisexual woman in the Pacific Northwest, and I have a question for you on the ethics of cheating. So I've been dating a man for about a year. Uh, He lives in another state, and I met him traveling for work, and we started this relationship long distance, but he's actually moving to my city in three months, and I'm super excited. So far, everything's been going really well, and Honestly, I could see us being together for like a long time. The tricky thing is that I'm bisexual, but I've never actually slept with a woman before and I really want to. In the past, I've been pretty nervous to initiate anything with women because I just feel really inexperienced. And frankly, I was planning on being single for a lot longer and have more time to figure this out before I met my current boyfriend. He knows that I'm bi and I think that down the line, he could be open to us sleeping with other people, but... I floated the idea of an open relationship with him kind of early on and sort of freaked out. I think that he's just really unfamiliar with what that looks like or like why someone would even want that. And um, even though I could see it being an option in the future, it might be like a couple years before you really get to that point. But I don't really know if I can wait that long to have an experience that feels kind of essential to me understanding my own sexuality. And honestly, with him being out of state for the next few months, it would be really easy for me to get away with. So I guess my question for you is how bad of a person does this make me? Um, I've listened to your show for a long time, so I've heard some of your opinions on, you know, like legitimate reasons for cheating, but I don't really know if this fits the bill. I just love my boyfriend so much, and I definitely don't want to lose him, but the odds that he would ever find out are so slim, and this kind of feels like an itch I need to scratch. So is this reasonable at all? I would love to know your thoughts. I suppose you could go find a woman to sleep with and he's not going to be around for a few months and the odds of him finding out are slim, but you don't want your sexual orientation and your sexual desires to be something that you have to sneak around about for the rest of your life. Odds are pretty high that sleeping with a woman is not something that you're going to want to do one time. It's not like you can just get it out of your system And if you want ultimately an open relationship that allows for you to be in a committed romantic and sexual relationship with a man and be free to explore sex with women and be not just bisexual and in a committed and monogamous relationship and only having heterosexual sex, but bisexual and sexually active with both man, that one man, and woman or women to be named later – Seems to me that that's something you want to talk about now with your boyfriend and lay that out for him as a price of admission. You love him and you want to be with him and presumably he loves you and wants to be with you and you are a bisexual woman who isn't going to be content 
to only be sexually active with a cis man. And he needs to accept that if he wants to be with you. That's the price of admission that he's going to have to pay to be with you. And so while it's highly likely that you could get away with it, I don't think you should want to get away with it. I think you should call his bluff, essentially. Does he want to be in a relationship with you? Okay, well, this is who you are. And this is what being in a relationship with you means. And this is what you need from your committed relationship with one person. You need this allowance, this accommodation. You need some latitude, some freedom to fully explore all aspects of your sexuality. And there's something in that deal, what you're asking of him, there's something in it for him too. That freedom and understanding and allowance to be who you actually are isn't just something that you're asking him to give you. It's something that you're willing to give him as well. But if that's not something he wants or that's not something he's capable of giving, as much as you love him, he might not be the right partner for you. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I am calling about my brother-in-law. He's my husband's older brother. He's in his 30s, handsome, Ivy League educated, and a professional musician. He's never had a partner that the family knows about. He's never talked about love or relationships, even casually, like describing a celebrity crush or pointing out someone attractive at a bar. He's never brought a person with him to a wedding or other event. The jury is out on whether he's ever had sex, uh, and that's just pure speculation on our part. We're a big, close-knit family that all lives in the same big city. His parents are religious, but also really kind and smart, and their views tend to be more progressive. They welcomed a socialist, feminist, atheist scientist as their daughter-in-law, so I I guess I call them tolerant, at least. I guess I already know that this is none of my business, um, but my husband and I are just sad that it seems like he's missing out on a big chunk of life. I'm wondering if it's inappropriate for me or, or him, my husband, to sort of push this issue with his brother. It's hard because we have absolutely no idea if he likes a particular gender. In a sort of strange way, if I had a more clear idea that he was gay, I feel like me and my husband would have more agency in terms of making it crystal clear that we're allies. But is it reasonable to be concerned about someone's perpetual singledom? Not just singledom, but perceived platonic singledom? Or are we being nosy for no reason? You never mention whether your brother-in-law is miserable or not. If he were coming to you and complaining about never being partnered, if he seemed unhappy being alone, maybe then you could justify going to him and saying, look, whatever it is, we love you and we will accept you and you know we want you to be happy and we want you to be partnered. But if he's not complaining about it, if he doesn't seem unhappy, there's no need for you to intervene in your accomplished brother-in-law's life. He could be asexual. He could be aromantic. He could have a sexual orientation that's hugely problematic and he's determined he can never act on. And so he has committed to living his life alone and has built for himself a very successful and very happy life alone and doesn't need you and your brother barging in and flipping tables over and screaming and yelling at him about what he's missing out on, which it doesn't sound like he feels he's missing out on. 
Because he's not coming to you. I'm sure if he was coming to you, going, oh, woe is me and my single life, you would have mentioned that. If he seemed at all unhappy, he doesn't seem unhappy. You know what will make someone in his shoes unhappy? An intervention where no intervention is required. I don't ascribe to the belief that you should never look at somebody or sit down with somebody and say, look, I think you might be. And if you are, that's great. And I love you. And I want you to know. Sometimes people don't come out until somebody really begs them to and invites them to and, and tells them essentially I already know because I've stumbled over your porn collection because I have friends who saw you making out with a dude in a bar and it got back to me and you're hiding from me and there's no need to hide from me. I know lots of people who've come out to their friends and family in circumstances like that where the straight friends and family, the straight allies insisted that they come out to them and they are grateful invariably the people that I know who've been through that, who are afraid to come out to mom and dad because they made all these assumptions about who their mom and dad were when they're 30, because they made all these assumptions about who their parents are now based on who their parents were when they were 12. And then mom said, look, tell me the truth. I want to know the truth. I suspect I was watching your crusty socks before you even knew that I knew about your crusty socks. And I saw your web browser history and come the fuck on already. Please tell me. I know guys who've come out to their mothers after the mothers have said things like that to them. And they were grateful in the end that their mothers confronted them. But they were hiding and they were unhappy and they were pulling away from their families because the only way you can hide your sexual orientation, if indeed you're hiding, is to distance yourself. Doesn't sound like your brother-in-law is doing any of that. My money's on your brother-in-law's asexual or aromantic and you should leave him the fuck alone and mind your own goddamn business. Unless he begins to confide in you or his brother about being unhappy and wanting a partner. That opens the door to a conversation then about sexual orientation and about who he is and what he wants and why he hasn't been able to find it thus far. But from here, from where I'm sitting with the few details you included, sounds like he knows who he is, musician, knows what he wants, an Ivy League education, to live in the city where you all live, and to do his thing. And you shouldn't look at him and pathologize him for not having or not wanting or prioritizing the kind of relationship that you wanted, that you have, and that you've prioritized. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old lesbian from Australia. I'm currently in a very loving, supportive and nurturing relationship with my girlfriend of about a year and a half. And my only question is that my girlfriend is closeted. It's because of culture. She is ethnically Chinese. She was growing up in a conservative Chinese family and religion. She identifies strongly as Christian. I get that everyone has their own journey coming out. I came out for a period of nine years. Femme visibility wasn't there for me and it took a little while. My only thing is I need to picture a future and I don't know how that works with her not being out. We're talking about having kids together and I just need to know how to best support her. You can't have kids in the closet. If you're having a conversation with your girlfriend about becoming parents, about taking that step, that forces a conversation with your girlfriend about coming out to her family 
of course, everyone has their own journey. You came out over a period of nine years. You say there wasn't a lot of representation you saw out there that helped you along. Well, you may be a part of your girlfriend's journey. You may be the reason she bites the bullet, comes out to her family and faces the shitstorm. And a shitstorm is coming. I would recommend that your girlfriend get her hands on Jeff Chu's book, Does Jesus Really Love Me? A Gay Christian's Pilgrimage in Search of God in America. He's ethnically Chinese from a very Christian, very conservative, very religious family. And he came out to them and it didn't go the way that you would hope it might. His parents didn't go to his wedding, for example, has a relationship with his parents. Now it's still a little bit strained, but Jeff is out and happy and married. And that is where you would like your girlfriend to be out and happy, potentially married and potentially co-parenting with you in the future. But something's got to fall into place before that can happen. She seriously can't ask you if you guys are going to parent together to pretend to be her roommate that she had kids with when her mom and dad are around. She's not going to be able to ask your kids to lie about who you are to her parents if her kids are going to have a relationship with their grandparents. Some truth will have to be told and difficult truths and scalding truths. And it's probably not something that her parents are going to want to hear or be happy about hearing. All that said, she doesn't have to come out. She doesn't have to come out for you. You don't have to stay in this relationship with her. She is free to make her own choice about whether she's ever going to tell her mom and dad the truth about who she is and who she loves. You are free to make your own choice about whether or not you can be with someone who's asking you to step back into the closet for them, who's asking you to hide. We leave the closet, we come out of the closet because it's a miserable place and we don't want to be there. And we don't want to live in there. Hooking up with a closet case, that's fine. Having a fling with a closet case, I think that can work. Sometimes people come out of the closet because they're closeted and they have brief relationships or hookups with people who aren't closeted and they get a glimpse of what life is like outside the closet and inspires them to come out. So I don't think we should have a blanket rule that you never hook up or date or casually see somebody who's not yet fully out. But to be in a relationship with someone who's not out, relationships are public. The details of your sex life, your intimacy, how you relate to each other, what you do in bed, that's all private. But the fact that you're in a relationship, that you've committed to each other, that's public. And it's public on steroids when you have kids together. So there are things, irrespective of what you want, there are things your girlfriend says that she wants. She wants you she wants commitment. She wants kids, potentially, family. Those things are in conflict with this other thing that right now she wants to avoid, which is coming out to her family, which is unavoidable, not just because of you, but because of everything else that your girlfriend says that she wants. And I reject the notion that an out gay partner can never issue an ultimatum, can never say, look, I love you. I want to be with you. For us to be together, you have to come out. It's a price of admission conflict. And sometimes price of admission conflicts are about big fundamental issues that really strike at someone's identity, that really hit somebody, you know, where their identity and their insecurities and their comfort levels all collide. And yet we look at the out gay partner who said, look, I want to be with you, but to be with you, we have to be out. And we think, oh, monster hustling someone along, forcing them to come out, not at their own pace. Okay. But the person is free to go. If the person doesn't want to come out, they can say no to that ultimatum and the relationship ends. No one's nailed to the floor. 
and really no closet doors are nailed shut. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old gay man, and I am in a newly open marriage, and I kind of forgot something about myself from like my single day, and now I don't know how to feel about it. I like remember when I was single, I had like trouble being with people who were like conventionally attractive. Like I wouldn't get turned on and it seemed like I needed to be with chubbier guys or guys who were older. And then I would like be able to perform with them. Otherwise I wasn't really in the mood and I wouldn't get erect. And so I can look at guys who are conventionally attractive and recognize that they are sexy. But then when I'm in the moment, generally things don't work. And so now that my marriage is newly open, I'm experiencing that again for the first time in several years. And I just don't know, like, is it just I'm not attracted to them and I should just fully embrace that? Or is this something where I just like sleeping with people when the stakes are lower because I have like poor confidence and I need to work against that in some way and like, I don't know, push myself to experiment more with people that are more conventionally attractive because I can recognize it. I can even watch a porn with a guy who's like thinner or more muscular and get off to that. But then when I'm with people in person, it just seems like if that person isn't a bigger, more stocky guy, or if they aren't slightly older than me, then I can't focus and be in the mood. And so I don't know if this is a confidence issue I should work on, or if this is just something that I should embrace because it's like a natural attraction. So I don't know how to feel and I would love any advice. Everyone is out there chasing conventionally attractive people. Everyone seems to be out there wanting to trade up, wanting to sleep with someone who's a little bit more attractive than they are. And a lot of people regard being able to get somebody into bed who they feel and it's not always the case, but they feel is more attractive than they are, that that's kind of an affirmation of their desirability. You're different. I think you may not even be that attracted to the conventionally attractive. If you're going to bed with conventionally attractive guys and you can't really get it up and you go to bed with somebody who's older than you or somebody who's stockier and you have no trouble getting it up, I think you should listen to your dick. We're told – you know, there's a beauty ideal. We're told that that's what we should want. And so much of adult life and so much of coming into your own sense of your sexuality is figuring out what are the things that I want and separating those from the things you were told to want. Sometimes there's overlap. Sometimes you were told to want the thing that you genuinely, authentically want. But often you're told to want things that you convince yourself you do want and then your body doesn't respond. Your reptile brain doesn't respond. And you realize that this, this thing, whatever it was, an opposite sex partner, a monogamous relationship, somebody who's conventionally attractive, somebody who's thin or muscular versus somebody who's bigger or heavier. These things I was told that I was supposed to want aren't actually the things that I want, aren't actually the things or the kinds of people or the kinds of relationships that work for me or turn me on. And once you determine what works for you and turns you on, you should confidently go for those things. Listening to your call, I was reminded of that famous Oscar Wilde quote, everything in the world is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. Maybe that's part of it for you. There's a certain power to being the more attractive person in the bed. 
and to being the, you know, on the con- scales of conventional attractiveness, being the more conventionally attractive, conventionally, conventionally attractive one in the bed. And maybe that's part of it for you, that it's freeing for you in the moment, not just freeing, but also gives you a kind of power swagger in the moment to feel like the more desirable one. That can be legitimate so long as someone who has that thing, who wants to sleep with people who aren't as conventionally attractive as they are, so long as they're not making the people that they're going to bed with feel like they're doing them a favor or disparaging them or disparaging their looks in the process or putting them down or making them feel small and undesirable, even enjoying that kind of eroticized power differential around attractiveness, not a bad thing. And if that's what works for you, lean into it. As that lady once said at that evil corporation. Hi, Dan. Straight woman in my 30s here. And I have a question for how I can support my gay friends. I am an Airbnb host. And I recently hosted a gay couple and found some stains on the sheets after their stay. Um, thinking forward about how I can um, you know, continue to provide hospitality to people of all sexual orientations. I'm wondering if um, you have any advice for cleanliness, um, if there are any types of products that gay folks might like to have around to prevent sheets from being stained, is there something I'm overlooking about what I can provide to keep things clean? Dark colored sheets, not just for the gay people who make reservations at your B&B, but for all people who stay at your B&B. Yes, sometimes stains. And I think I know exactly what kind of stains you're referring to here. Sometimes that happens. Usually gay people fucking around on white sheets are smart enough to lay down a towel, which then gets the stain. If indeed a stain happens, not every time that people have anal sex, is there a shit stain in the bed? Just like not every time straight people have vaginal sex, are there blood stains in the bed? But it is a thing that sometimes happens. It is a risk. Sometimes straight people have crazy straight sex, turn the lights on, and then realize that her period kicked in. And it looks like a crime fucking scene. And there is carnage, bloody sheets, bloody duvet covers. That happens. It's a risk of heterosexual sex. Well... It's a risk of not just gay sex, a little bit of the particular kind of stain I think that you were referring to. Straight people have the butt sex too. If you don't want to notice or have to worry about or spot treat those kinds of stains, dark colored sheets are your friend as a host. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk with an author, co-author of a very important new book about queers, about Queer history, about our history if you're queer. We are denied our history, the contributions of LGBT people, to the culture, to society, to our own movement, and even our own communities. It isn't taught. It is often forgotten. And since queers don't raise the next generation of queers, memory is not passed effortlessly from one generation to another. There is, however, an Instagram account, also now a book that is trying to change that, called LGBT History at LGBT underscore history on Instagram. And the co-creator of that Instagram account and the co-author of the new book that grew out of it, We Are Everywhere, Matthew Reamer, joins us today in the studio. Hey, Matthew, how are you? I'm doing great, Dan. Thanks. So so tell me about the genesis of uh, LGBT history. I started following it early on. I think there was only a few hundred followers when I started following. Now there are 400,000 followers. So there's obviously some hunger out there uh, for the kind of queer history lessons that you guys provide. Uh, Yeah. I, I, uh, and I well remember when you, uh, when you started following, um, we, we, 
So the, the genesis of it was Leighton and I are both um, attorneys by training, uh, very privileged. We walk around in white cis uh, male bodies who uh, we have all the privileges of great educations. We were stereotypical gay white men in D.C., uh, mm-hmm. tank tops. And, uh, and <laughs> so there's anything wrong with being know. a gay white man in D.C. Absolute, in a tank top? Absolutely not. Absolutely. No, we love them. Uh, but uh, didn't have a lot of interaction with any other aspects of our community uh, other than gay white men in tank tops and um, certainly not our history. I This is where I get really cool. I have always collected pinbacks, buttons, mm-hmm. um, and at some point I had started to collect kind of gay history uh, specific buttons, which had given me some you know, general outline of our understanding of gay history, enough so that we wound up going to the unveiling of Frank Kameny's headstone uh, in in uh, uh, Congressional Cemetery, which is right by Matt, uh, Leonard Matlovich. So let's have the queer history lesson right now. For folks out there who don't know who Frank Kameny was, who is Frank Kameny? So he's best known as gay is good, um, mm-hmm. but he was the moral and logical compass of the queer liberation movement from about 1960 on. He was the radical who said we had to take it to the streets. Um, and, and he not only brought us out into picketing, he also fought the APA to get our uh, get us off the crazy list um, and 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 forward uh, to have uh, homosexuality delisted from the DSM right. uh, as a mental illness or disorder. Frank Kameny worked with the Mattachine Society, I believe. Yeah, uh, and the famous protests that he orchestrated. One of the things they did at those protests was tell the mostly gay men and lesbians who showed up for them, mostly white. They instructed uh, the women to wear skirts, the men to wear suits and ties. It was sort of you know trying to let people know that gays and lesbians are just like every other middle-class white American. And when we went to the unveiling, that was kind of our understanding as well. Our history has been packaged in a certain way to fit narratives that now exist because of the way uh, or because of the work done by people before us. Uh, and, and I am not slamming no, no, Frank no. Kameny or oh, Mattachine no, I know. or that movement no, I know. Or, or that protest and, and how they packaged it. It was a time where that was perhaps the most effective political message to deliver because the perception was that gay people were all dangerous radicals and subversives and they wanted to push back against that, which was being used to justify firing people who are gay from the State Department, used to justify arresting people, gay bar raids, bathhouse raids. So it was the right and appropriate pushback at that time. Right. So what we found is is that – so the Mattachine Society is talked about in this big monolith. So there's actually a, a number of eras. The Mattachine Foundation was founded by Harry Hay early on, and they were radicals, uh, communists, and and total secret. I mean they were done cloak and dagger. Uh, when they throw uh, 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 a court case got popular and all of a sudden there were hundreds and then thousands of members, that brought in a new diversity of ideas including conservatives. Mm-hmm. That's They got pushed out. Harry Hay got pushed out. Uh, and then a conservative wave came in, uh, led by a guy named uh, Hal Call, and they were the more assimilationists. There would be a third wave of new radicals, including people like Frank Kameny, who took it to the streets because Hal Call wanted nothing to do with picketing. And they picketed the White House, they picketed the State Department, right. they picketed the Pentagon, and the UN, yeah, and pre-Stonewall, and, right, exactly. And then and then they create the space. So a guy named Craig Rodwell was among those. Uh, Craig Rodwell would come up with the idea of the reminder days 
uh, in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. That was for five years on July 4th, queer people confronting the dominant culture in public commemorative event. That would be the rock on which pride is built because then in 69, a few days after Stonewall, people like Craig Rodwell, who had been at Stonewall, have finally had enough of the suits and ties and the skirts. And there's also this amazing moment, we, and there's a picture of it in the, in the book, where uh, one of the rules was you walk single file. Everybody walks single file. Well, a couple, two lesbians held hands at, at this event. And walked and, side by side. Yeah. And Kameny is apoplectic. <laughs> um, and he breaks them apart. And Rodwell at that point knew something had to change, and he will then in the coming months propose kind of to the regional coordination of homophile organizations and then beyond this idea for Christopher Street Liberation Day, which he wants to be a national event, which becomes Pride. Um, which and, we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of right. this June. We've gotten pretty far down the rabbit hole from your inspiration yeah, right. to start LGBT right. history. Right. It happens very quickly. You went to the unveiling of Frank Kameny's yep. tombstone in D.C., yep. Uh, and, and I read the book, and what you took away from that was not how much you knew about Frank Kameny or about the LGBT movement, but how little. And you guys were inspired, you and your uh, husband? Partner. Partner? Homosexual life partner. <laughs> you and your homosexual life partner and co-author, uh, Leighton Brown, were inspired to create LGBT history, not just to teach history to others, but to learn it to yourself. Learn. Right, yeah. You know, the way we tell it now, it's like come some of the stories that we try, to, or the myths that we try to bust. It, it's not triumphant. We were really sad and really frustrated and, and felt really isolated because, again, here we are. We're two very uh, privileged, educated. We were both history majors in, in undergrad, um, and we didn't know anything. It, like It was About like queer a, history. A, right, a foreign language. I mean, we knew gay is good. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but here were all these people talking about this person and, and other people whose names we didn't know, issues we didn't know. And it started almost immediately. And, and yeah, we didn't know anything about social media. Leighton didn't have an uh, Instagram account until we started this so he could follow this. And, um, and like you said, it didn't take long until we realized, and I think it's because we were just ner- we're nerdy attorneys who wrote long, detailed passages uh, that we hit a nerve. Mm. I- I've learned so much following uh, LGBT history, and I feel like I'm pretty well-versed. I'm lucky. You know, I wasn't raised by queers who taught me all about queer history, but my first boyfriend was like not just giving me the D – he was also giving me books and saying, you should read this, you should read this, you should know this, you should know this. Uh, and so I felt like when I started following LGBT history, like you tagged me into the Merle Miller post, that's how I found you. And I was like, I know who Merle Miller is, but I did not know Big Mama Thornton. I did not know Henry Gerber. I did not know Lee Brewster. I did not know Albert Becker. I did not know Esther Eng. I have met so many queer heroes, really. Yeah. Uh, g- groundbreaking, brave uh, men and women uh, and non-binary folks whose stories have been forgotten. And you guys working on this uh, Instagram account have really unearthed a- a- and given back to us and not just to uh, queer people of all ages who may not have you know, been lucky enough to have the kind of first boyfriend I had or motivated enough to go find the history themselves, but to bring it to people casually and through this and, and through a, a social media platform that's just so accessible. You guys have done tremendous work here. I hope you don't come in for too much criticism from the, you know, the peanut gallery on Instagram. It's amazing. I, I can't believe that we backed into this. And we are conscious of 
the responsibility. responsibility. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and I think you guys do a, a, a tremendous job. And anyone who looks at the two of you and concludes that because two gay, white, cisgendered men who may have had tank tops in their past. <laughs> I'm sorry I said the tank top. <laughs> this because, well, I think it's really funny, actually. You know, I look, I look through the pictures of these early liberation protests in the 60s and 70s. And yeah, you spot some like gay white men at those protests oh, and tank tops. Gay white men are absolutely. a part of the movement and always have been. Absolutely. Tank tops are not. And, right. Yeah. And th- this is this is where it really gets difficult, I think, right now with with this well-intentioned push toward some notion of inclusivity in history. The problem is, is that inclusivity is just, you know, it's kind of like diversity from whatever, a, a classically white institution. Um, it, you don't have to do that. If you just tell the truth about mm-hmm. history, it's inclusive sounds like you're doing a favor. If you actually just go and do the work and accuracy tell, and, right, the just tell accuracy, people of color, women, non-binary folks, the uh, disabled people, the radicals have always been there. It's not that you need to create uh, myths or fiction or anything else. And, you know, we talk about this a lot. I mean, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera are perfect examples. And we have, you know, somewhat fetishized them, mythology, certainly made them into myths. For one thing, Sylvia was just loathed when she was alive. She was treated like absolute dirt because she was a radical and in your face. Um, and this is a very difficult person. Right. And, and of course she was. I mean, she was treated horribly. You know, both of them at some point or another had said that they weren't they, nobody threw a shot glass or a brick or a Molotov cocktail. I mean, it was a it was a collective moment at Stonewall, like that. And and you know, Marsha P. Johnson is often credited with throwing the first brick at Stonewall. That may or may not be true, but it's become apocryphal. The thing about it is, is there were trans people of color, street people there at the very beginning. What holding those two up does for us is it excuses us from doing the hard work of figuring out who those nameless trans people were and, and, and finding out their stories. And we do this over and over and over again with queer history. We pick out a couple of folks and, and, and is, that, is that something unique to queer history though? Isn't that no. a problem with history generally and broadly where we attach a lot of meaning and importance to certain historical figures who's, who we can track more easily, who come to stand for and, and symbolize something larger than themselves and in the process erase some other players and other historical absolutely. figures. Absolutely, absolutely. What, what Leighton and I didn't understand was that there's more. There, it, there's just an infinite depth uh, of queer history. I, I think. I think with with you know more general history, there's a, a tacit understanding that yeah, these are you know icons that are being held up as examples of you know whatever. But with us, it really is like oh, Marcia and Sylvia were they were the ones. Mm-hmm. You don't ever stop to think that no, there were tons of trans people of color. There were more than just Harvey Milk running for office at at that time. He wasn't even the first openly gay man elected to a public office. There was another person, I believe, in Florida whose name I don't know and can't remember who's often brought up. So why a book? You're on this social media platform. You're reaching the young people who perhaps need this kind of information, even old people like me who need this kind of information. You're interested to meet a lot of people that I wasn't familiar with uh, through this, you know, modern media platform. Why a book? What became clearer and clearer as we went along, these are not discrete stories. Our history is always presented as a, as a, as a bunch of discrete episodes mm-hmm. of people, of, of disconnected people who just pop up and do something brave and go back to, from whence they came. 
Um, and what the book shows is, is how all is, these people are all, woven together. It's all into connected. The it's really crazy how all connected it is. I mean, people just keep popping. Oh, Who's someone who pops up again and again? So Henry Gerber, who you mentioned earlier, uh, he, you know, he he's often been told. So in 1924, he founds what's known as kind of the first gay rights group in Chicago, um, the Society for Human Rights. Uh, Founded in Chicago, not in New York or San Francisco. Right, right. And, and it, that's it, completely forgotten. If and when that's ever mentioned, his story is told as someone who just disappears Nobody, nobody disappears. I mean, he lives for fifty more years, and he is just bombarding the coming generations with with paper and, and ideas. And he's just writing. and And not not only that, but there's this incredible detail that uh, this young man in L.A. in 1929, he gets, he's out cruising, meets Champ Simmons. So the young man is Harry Hay. He meets Champ Simmons, his first lover, and Champ Simmons tells him of a friend who was involved with this mythical. Uh, organization in Chicago of organizing homosexuals, and it turns out to be the Society for Human Rights. So that information passed on to Harry Hay. Harry Hay held on to it for decades, and even though he married and had kids, but he always dreamt of organizing homosexuals. And then in 48, 48 to 50, he rises up and comes up with the with the call, and that becomes Mattachine. And later on, uh, and Mattachine, in its way, uh, inspires gay activist alliance because right. it's it, in reaction and opposition to some of the Mattachine stuff that it kind of calcified over that decade. Um, and all of these things are interlinked yeah. and interrelated. And you can unpack that and make those connections in the book in a way you can't on Instagram. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and it's, it's, in, it's incredible. Wow. So if you had to pick the one person that because you took this on and you created LGBT history on Instagram, the one person that you stumbled over whose story that you got to tell that moved you the most or surprised you the most, who would it be? Ortez Alderson, uh, who who was one of the original gay liberationists, apparently just a radical black queen in Chicago. But then he he gets arrested for in like 1970-71 for breaking into a, a draft board office and destroying a bunch of files. He shows back up in New York City. He's one of the f- early members of ACT UP uh, and then the, the uh, Majority Action Committee of People of Color. And then Sylvia. Sylvia Rivera is in many ways was gay liberation – she saw oppression, anyone's oppression, as her own oppression. Uh, she was willing to literally scale buildings and get arrested. And a, you know, the, the kind of assimilationist mid seventies push of leaders came along and would really use her as a foot soldier, but but not but, honor her, or respect yeah, her, and not look out for her rights. Mm-hmm. And, and and that is the story. Uh, and it's a real sad story, and it's a story that we really – it's well past time that, that we confront because as we know from news recently and news forever, you know, Sylvia's descendants are still fighting for any basic representation, visibility, and life. And, and that is something that, that while you know, our oppression as queer people certainly is at the hands of the dominant culture, all of our liberation is our own responsibility, and we ha- there have been conscious choices made by the mainstream gay and lesbian community – that have directly led to uh, the ongoing oppression of the more marginalized members of our broader community. And because we have not really grappled with the choices that have been made throughout queer history, we're still, we're still going to, we're just going to be reinventing the wheel over and over and over again. Um, and it's not altogether fun, uh, but but it's what it's our family. It's what we got. The book is We Are Everywhere, Protest, Power, and Pride in the History of Queer Liberation by Matthew Reamer and Leighton Brown. Grew out of the really terrific LGBT history account on Instagram. Thank you so much for coming in today, Matthew. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Hi, Dan. I work in a smallish but super liberal college town in the Midwest. 
A guy at work who reports to me is fairly religious, and he has some tokens of that on his desk. Nothing crazy, just a few printed Bible quotes about being kind. I know from conversations with him that his church is very liberal, the kind of church with a lesbian pastor. He really seems to be the kind of Christian that Jesus would have actually liked. Anyway, I've now heard from three gay coworkers that they were worried about coming out because they see these tokens of his religion on his desk and they don't feel safe. Here's my question. Should I tell him that his religious symbols are making people afraid to come out? I actually think he would be mortified to know and they would never want anyone to feel uncomfortable. He really is a nice guy. I want to let him know. How do I approach this subject with him? I guess, just like we gays don't want people to assume that every gay guy is a fisting bottom meth-addled sex monster and we don't want them to assume that every lesbian's a man-hating motorcycle-riding dyke, although some are, and that's totally fine. We don't want to assume that everybody who's Christian and slightly public about their faith is an anti-queer bigot. Evangelical Christian nutbags are actually in the minority, although they're the loudest Christians out there. And so even gays and lesbians and bi's and trans folks, we're sometimes prone to just assuming for our own safety and protection that if somebody is very public about their Christianity, about their Christian faith, that that's not somebody that we can trust. That's not someone we're safe around because most people who are making public uh, pronouncements about Jesus are not people who like us much. That said, you know this guy and you've had coworkers confide in you about not feeling safe coming out around him because they are making an assumption about who he is based on a couple of be kind quotes from the Bible that he has hanging in his cubicle. Would that were all anyone took away from the Bible were the be kind quotes. What a better world we would live in if that was the takeaway as opposed to all of the sex shaming, slut shaming, gay bashing, misogynist shit that people take away from the Bible because it's in there. People take it away. Ignore what Jesus had to say, which was, you know, not a lot of slut shaming, didn't mention abortion, didn't mention homosexuality, talked about taking care of the sick, visiting the prisoner, welcoming the visitor, the immigrant. All that falls by the wayside when, you know, you've got Leviticus to cling to in your insecurity and your self-loathing and your self-hatred and your terror of women and gays and sex. But you should go to your co your coworkers who come to you saying, oh my God, that guy with the Bible quotes, ah, I don't know. You know, you know he's fine. You know he's from a liberal church with a dyke pastor. I think that that's a fact about him that you can freely share. And then your coworkers will feel comfortable coming out in front of this guy. Depending on the kind of relationship you have with him, I do think this is a convo you could have with him. People see those Bible quotes and they think Tony Perkins. They don't think Gene Robinson, who is the openly gay bishop, the Diocese of New Hampshire, Episcopal Bishop. And that could all be fixed if indeed he knew it was a problem that he had to fix. And if he's a be kind Christian, I think it's a problem he would want to fix if he just put a little rainbow sticker up in his office or a pro-gay quote. Or a safe space sign, which you sometimes see in offices, sometimes you see them on cubicles, that he can neutralize the fear response that some queers at his office have when they see that Bible shit being brandished. That's not an irrational fear. Again, like most of the people publicly running around quoting the Bible are not friends of ours. Or you could steal one of those yard signs they have out all over Seattle. In this home, we believe, blah, 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 blah. I'm sure you've seen it. You can get him one. But on the scale of Christian dudes at work with Bible quotes on their cubicles, this is a pretty good problem to have. This iteration of it, this version of it is a better one than most. 
All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Butterfly Tyne tweets, the number of times I reference at fake Dan Savage during conversations with my friends and loved ones is astronomic. But I think it's a good thing. I'm spreading my atheist version of the good news, the good life, and relationship knowledge. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Thank you so much for that vote of confidence, Butterfly Tyne. I hope your friends enjoy it when you quote me to them. Mallory tweets, I know I'm late to the game, but I definitely feel like Angelinos do tend to believe in magic more than others. It's just a different kind of magic other than Christianity. And finally, Artremis Coniferous tweets at Savage Lovecast. What would it take at Fake Dan Savage for you all to have some respect for one of the best and most valued spices in human history? Stop vanilla shaming, please. Hey, vanilla, when it comes to ice cream, is literally my favorite. It's the only kind I ever get. I am not a vanilla shamer. I adore vanilla. And I don't think kinky people should slag off people who are vanilla just for being vanilla. Just like I don't think vanilla people should slag off people who are kinky just for being kinky. People like the flavors they like. And they're all valid. That said, if all you're doing is vanilla because that's all you'll allow yourself to have, if you really want the Rocky Road but you order the vanilla because vanilla is normal and you want to feel normal, that's the wrong reason to order the vanilla. You got to let that go. You got to experiment with some of the different flavors and mix-ins if that's what you want. But if vanilla is what you love, like me, and vanilla is all I ever order in ice cream places, no shame. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. Fellow nudist here. I heard your interview with Stefan about nudity, and I had some thoughts based on my own experiences. As a child, I often saw my family naked around the house or in the yard, and I never thought much of it. Even my grandpa would get into his birthday suit and join us by the pool. And no, it was never something I felt gross or unsafe with. Growing up in this way not only helped me become very comfortable in my own skin, it also helped me see a separation between bodies and sexuality. These two things can be combined, of course, but they don't have to be. Being a nudist doesn't mean being naked all the time either. It just means having the freedom to do it when you want to, without shame. In most places, the only way you see naked bodies are in mass media and porn, which are touched up and have very unrealistic standards. Despite your current feelings about nudity, it's a fantastic challenge to put yourself in non-sexual naked situations. If you haven't been to, say, a nude beach or a Korean spa, I highly recommend it as a way to begin exploring the idea of bodies in a non-sexual light. You'll be surprised how freeing it really is. To the caller in episode 660, whose sister was addicted to meth for eight years, you have every right to not want to see or communicate with your sister right now, even to offer an olive branch. Addiction is a disease, and it is a disease that makes people lie. Without consequences, addicts rarely get clean. True consequences, losing people in their lives that are important to them is part of that. So I gather from things you said about your father, he has likely enabled your sister through her addiction and continues to enable her during her period of trying to become sober. There is a difference between abstinence and sobriety when it comes to addiction. Don't be fooled. I can't diagnose this just from your short phone call, but I would suggest, I would highly suggest, get yourself to some Al-Anon meetings, learn about the disease, learn about how it's affected you, learn how to communicate with your sister in the future if that's something you want to do, but stick firm to your boundaries. You're allowed to have them. Addicts hurt people around them. They lie to people around them. You have every right to be upset. You have every right to not communicate with your sister. And your father is, again, probably enabling your sister. This is for the woman in episode 660 whose boyfriend won't take her to his hometown wedding. 
you are right to be suspicious of this man. He is planning to cheat on you on this trip, possibly with some high school sweetheart. Since nobody there knows you even exist, he won't seem like a cheating prick and it will be very easy for him to do this. This guy does not love you or even respect you because if he did, he would happily include you in his hometown friend's wedding. He would proudly introduce you to all of his friends and family like a normal boyfriend. I think he's using you. I recommend you end this relationship as soon as possible. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. And if you want us to read one of your tweets on the air, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. Looking for something fun to do this summer with your friends and lovers? Consider making a film for my Dirty Little Porn Film Festival, Hump. It's free to submit, and you have a chance to win part of the $20,000 in cash prizes at the festival, including the $10,000 Best in Show Award, granted by Audience Ballot. Films for Hump can be hardcore, softcore, live-action, animated, kinky, vanilla, gay, lesbian, trans, straight. We want it all. We want everyone represented, people of all shapes, colors, ages, sizes. Everybody has a home at Hump. The deadline to submit is September 13th, so get humping. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out more about how you can make a film for Hump. Nothing at Hump goes up online. Hump is in theaters only, so Hump makes it possible for those of you out there who'd like to be porn stars for the weekend in a movie theater without having to be porn stars for eternity on the internet. Again, go to humpfilmfest.com for more. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Matthew Reimer on Twitter at LGBT underscore history. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast, this time with a few more straight callers. Thanks for downloading.